The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. How many people are here for Buddhist studies for the first time? We have a couple, well, more than a couple. Oh, good. Well, welcome. So you might have heard that uh, we do have a prerequisite for the Buddhist studies classes. It's kind of made up, but uh, the basic idea is that we want people who take the class to have a practice so it's not just an intellectual endeavor to learn about the teachings, and that you have this meditation practice then to apply the teachings. So we create this arbitrary criteria that you've done three mindfulness retreats, including, could be even half-day retreats, just as a sort of a stepping stone or a way of demonstrating that, yep, I'm practicing, or a commitment to daily practice, I think the prerequisite says. So if you have any questions about that, just check in with me afterward. And a couple other nuts and bolts. So thanks to John Sue for putting the new folks in the email list. So we do have a Google group. You can always unsubscribe, and you will be in the Buddhist Studies Google group until you do unsubscribe. And I'll resend the email I sent earlier in the afternoon with a couple other additional readings. And so if you don't get that by midday tomorrow, I'll try to get it out early in the morning, then that means for some reason you're still not in the Google group. So send me an email, and we'll get you in the Google group. And my email address is mark at commongroundmeditation.org. So the office email is info at, which you'll see on the website. Just substitute mark instead of info, and it will come to me, and we'll get you in the Google group. And everyone can immediately go to the webpage where we have lots of resources to study. So the Buddhist studies class involves practice, sitting down and meditating or walking, sometimes even lying down. But in any case, that formal, dedicated time where we're using the mind to study the mind. And in the case of this particular course, we're using the mind to study the mind's capacity to abide in the emotion of loving, uh, of appreciative joy, and later in the in the month, equanimity, as a quality of love. And then, but the study really can help do the practice. So that's the idea of having some resources. I'll send it out via email, but there are additional resources on the website. And of course, some of you may know some good resources, and please send them along to me, and we'll include the ones that are appropriate. And it would be nice if uh, somebody is willing to scan Sharon Salzberg's chapter on appreciative joy in her book on loving kindness. That would be great. And we'll put that up for people who don't have their own copy. Although, for people who are really interested in this path of practice, it's a really useful uh, manual for people to get a hold of Sharon Salzberg's book, Loving Kindness, A Revolutionary Art of Happiness. Really excellent. Even though it's been around now probably over 20 years, I find uh, just a deepening appreciation of the book. And may that happiness continue (laughs) and increase and never end. (laughs) Really, we want to take, I mean, more than anything, what will help what we're studying sink in is if you get really good at catching 
little ordinary moments of gratitude and appreciation. Because it's, it's not enough to have moments of gratitude and appreciation. We really want the wisdom of the mind to notice, oh, this is a moment of appreciation being known. Because that's what actually builds the momentum, is the mind recognizing it, and basically recognizing the wholesomeness of it. And that's a pleasant feeling. And maybe you even touched that just recently in the guided meditation. Because we're actually meditating on that beautiful quality of the heart, that beautiful capacity of the heart. And the wonderful thing about and why in the Buddhist tradition these four meditations on loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity, one of the reasons in the tradition they're used for jhana practice, for deep states of absorption and meditation, is because they're pleasant. And so when the mind pays attention, opens to what is beautiful and good, well, it's like an inner magnet. It's like the mind is happy to look at something beautiful, happy to abide, to rest there. So it really, you can see how it supports the gathering, the unification of the mind into deep states of concentration or absorption or jhana is the Pali and Sanskrit word. And you know, it's interesting, isn't it, how good, I think just generally, and some of us especially good, at being critical, at sensing what's off, what's wrong. You wore that sweater, you know, you know you're sitting like that, you use that kind of a pen. You know, it's just amazing that critical, judgmental, fear-based mind. Because, you know, it's pretty easy for us to imagine how, although it may not be a pleasant state to abide in, to abide with, nor will it, would it probably be supportive of, you know, happy relationships with other beings, but it just might lead to survival, you know, like in terms of being selected through the evolutionary process, having a critical, judgmental, fear-based mind, those beings might more often survive than people abiding in appreciative joy. I'm not sure, but I, <laughs> I'm just trying to understand why, speaking of myself, you know, aversion is a much more dominant quality in the mind than appreciative joy. But in terms of waking up and in terms of seeing clearly that tendency toward ill will and aversion is a very um, unhelpful distortion in the mind. Because it's like we basically think the world is the way the lens of aversion makes it look. Doesn't the world seem a lot of the time dismal? mean-spirited, wrong, broken, you know. And it's not that that's not true. 
I mean, from a particular angle, that is true. It's an, there's a lot of injustice, a lot of suffering, a lot of mean-spiritedness, a lot of oppression, no ground. You know, there are a lot of things for that aversive mind to notice and react to. But it isn't the whole truth. It's just a particular angle on what's here. And the thing is, it's not that we want to stop that discriminative, critical mind. We need that. It just needs to be in balance. So we need to train. I mean, maybe there are a few of you that are way over the top of seeing what's beautiful and what's good and There is what's called a near enemy to mudita, appreciative joy, gladness, empathetic joy, which I like to call exuberance, right? Where the mind is kind of ecstatic, tripping over how wonderful things are, and all of a sudden it starts to get disconnected from what is good and beautiful, and is kind of tripping on its own exuberance, its own delighting. And you know that that's a near enemy, meaning it's not sympathetic joy. It's not this emotion that we're cultivating because it's not connecting with the moment. It's getting lost in its own constructions. Oh, this is so great. It's so great. And you're not even aware of what's so great. You're, what's so great is you think everything is great, right? And you're kind of falling back in that exuberance. So that's the near enemy, meaning... It kind of looks like appreciative joy. The far enemy, or you know, the opposite, you could say, is something like envy. Well, what about me? You know, instead of appreciating someone looking serene in the room, you know, you're sitting and you decide to look around, and somebody by you is seeming so settled and serene, and they have that angelic smile. You know, and their body just seems totally released, like they have absolutely no remaining stress in the body. And instead of noticing how beautiful that is and how appreciative, how glad you are that they're, as much as you could tell, in a good place, may that continue, may it increase, may it never end, what arises in our heart is, what about me? Why doesn't that ever happen to me? You know, it isn't fair. They got the best cushion or, you know, (laughs) blame something. They started when they were really young. I should have started practicing when I was young. So that's the far enemy. Because that we recognize along. That's definitely not appreciative joy. (laughs) So we're, we're looking for opportunities for the, the natural arising of this capacity to appreciate, to notice what's beautiful, to notice what's good. And remember, start, just take advantage of really simple things. Like now, I almost never miss, I, although this cat we have, after our last cat da- died, is much more finicky eater. We found out that our neighbors, I think several neighbors feed this cat because it's so friendly <laughs> and it goes out a lot. Anyway, so now it's finicky because we feed it good food and it doesn't want good food. It wants sort of the cheap stuff. But anyway, uh, I generally 
when it's eating, I like to be there. And I just stand there, not for long, and I just appreciate that animal and this moment experiencing some joy, like getting some food that it wants. Or when you see the cat lying around the house in a comfortable place, feeling pretty seemingly chilled out, you know. Or when my partner's laughing at something, you know, and just like, how sweet that a human being in this kind of world can really laugh, can really appreciate that sort of undefended release that we call laughter. Or as I mentioned, just like come to Common Ground, the fact that even Common Ground exists and that people come here, so just instead of coming and sitting in the morning, just sitting in the morning, just sit in the lobby and watch people coming to sit. You know, like they drove all the way here to sit. That's kind of cool. You know, or sit in the back row and watch people. (laughs) The point is, there is goodness, there is beauty, ordinary things, like appreciating the clothes that we have and how, you know, adequate they are. They really do their job for the most part and that our car mostly starts, right? And most of us have a bed that's relatively warm. These things can be appreciated. The sunshine can be appreciated. The whiteness of the snow can be appreciated. Just seeing two people interacting in a wholesome way at a bus stop can be appreciated. And it's just what's really going to be shocking in a good way is like, why have I been missing all of this? Because it's very healing to start to notice these things. I mean, we can walk into the grocery store, as my mind might do, especially the bigger you know, stores. And, you know, I can be really critical, you know, about consumerism and we don't need this stuff and what are, who are all these people here and, you know, wasting money. And But even in something that, you know, maybe we would normally react to, there's a way to appreciate, like, the people, the minds behind these products. Because a lot of it was somebody trying to create something that would be useful for people and is useful for people. You know, and that there are people putting their heart into a job and getting paid, right? And that that circle of giving and receiving, you know, that's something beautiful too, that somebody has found some kind of livelihood for themselves, whether it's the person we imagine who made the thing or the person who's selling the thing. So when we do the sitting practice, <clears throat> the formal practice then, the idea is to mind, to use all of our experiences and just see like when we establish the, re- the result, okay, I'm going to sit down and do some appreciative joy practice and we settle in and then we just need to start wherever we can. So we're just asking the mind to present some examples of having seen what is good, what is beautiful, somebody's success, somebody's happiness. It doesn't really matter. Just start where your mind, you know, whatever your mind offers or don't 
Don't look for the absolute best memory that you can bring to mind. Just something that's good enough. And then the idea is you're not even looking at that memory, that mental image, too long because the idea of that particular mental image being brought up is that it will evoke this emotion, this mind state of appreciative joy. And then it's like a little flame that we want to keep going. Right, So we have some tools to help that emotion. What does emotion do? It keeps moving, right? If it has fuel supporting causes, that emotion will keep going. So there's a couple things that keep it going. We have the mental image that you can always bring up again and again and again or related you know, little rifts off of the initial memory or mental image. And you might find that you just have some go-to places. You have a particular niece, you know, or your particular memory of a particular niece when, you know, she was playing with the sprinkler in the summer, you know, and just having a blast. And that memory has sort of been burnt into the mind, so you can draw on it whenever you need to. Or you might be kind of thrashing around looking for something. Just find something that's good enough and then use it as necessary. So that's one tool or skillful means, right? We have the phrases, and I mentioned the ones that I like, but you know, there are any number of phrases. It could be simple as, like, as you use the mental image or memory, this is beautiful. This is sweet. You know, this is sweet. That's really nice. This image makes the heart sing, makes the heart happy, right? So, or just the word happy, happy, joy. You can even put your hand here, if you'd like, on your heart when you're sitting. So there's any number of skillful means. We have phrases, touch, mental image, memory. And then ultimately, though, the most important anchor is the actual expansive feeling of the emotion itself. It really has almost, I mean, it will have a visceral feeling. Sometimes it feels like your heart's going to break, but it's not the heart breaking, it's the heart loosening up. You know, it's the ancient crunch, defendedness of the heart starting to not seem needed. Like I always think, I don't know if you did this, but when we were kids, like in the mid-60s, early 60s, in elementary school, we had this thing kind of make the rounds where someone would say, okay, you squeeze your hand for a long time, you know, and then they do all this sort of stuff on your arm, which I don't think really does anything, but it's just like allows you to keep your your fist squeezed really tight for like a couple minutes. And then they'd say, now open your hand. And it's like, for a little bit, it was like you couldn't open it. And then when you did start to open it, it really hurt. I don't know, maybe it was like the power of suggestion, but it was a little trippy thing. And it just sort of swept North Minneapolis in the mid-60s. <laughs> I'm sure it, sure it hit your neighborhood too, wherever that was. <laughs> but it's a little bit like this in our heart. You know, if we've been a frightened animal for a long time, mistrusted joy, mistrusted what is beautiful and good. You know, part of the reason we mistrust it because we can't grab it. We can't 
own it. We can't, like, build our life on it. And we've been betrayed by it, so we think the answer is to reject it. But that's not the answer. The answer is to appreciate it for what it is. You know, joy, beauty, goodness, in a way, is even more beautiful precisely because I can't build, I can't own it, it isn't going to save me. It's just something to appreciate. And so what, that's what we're doing is we're releasing the heart that's in a diluted way, looking for solid ground, and we're allowing the heart to do the one thing that it can do in this moment. It can appreciate what's beautiful. And that itself is beautiful. So this is why it's this exponential function. If you, you know, initially, there's some effort of using memory, mental images, using phrases, using the actual feeling of the heart, maybe even touching your heart center. But after a while, just the expansive, light, radiant sensations, both, you know, emotion is sort of this bridge between body and mind. So it has both a visceral and a mental cognitive quality to it. Then that ultimately is the anchor. And when that's strong, when the feeling of that emotion is clear enough, then practice being less dependent on the memory, reigniting, uh, bringing in the mental image over and over again. Just relax that a little bit. Maybe you don't need phrases, so drop the phrases or use fewer phrases less often. And eventually, the radiant feeling of the emotion will be strong enough to be your meditation object without any supports for a while. But then you might get distracted, you might get into envy or whatever, and you kind of lose that emotion, loses its momentum, and you're kind of back in a more ordinary state. And then you might need to bring in the phrases, you might need to use a mental image, By the way, in the email that I sent earlier today, there's some basic instructions there. And if you have Sharon's book, those instructions are much more detailed. And we'll see if we can get a scanned copy of that chapter out to everybody. Um, And I'll send out uh, Ajahn Sushito's instructions for Mudita, Appreciative Joy, tomorrow in the email. So that will be a third set that you can use to kind of help guide your formal sitting practice. And I really emphasize, like, drop your other meditation practices and just use this. Because if you do it, you know, three, four days in a row during your formal sitting time, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever you can do, maybe even twice a day, then it will be easier to start doing it during daily life because you'll get a little bit of momentum, you have more confidence, The phrases will sort of feel more familiar. And again, you don't have to use the phrases that I offer tonight. Uh, Just fine. I actually, you know, they were just phrases I heard once, I think from Guy Armstrong. Just find phrases you like. Sharon has several listed in her chapter in the handout that I emailed you today that has some other suggested phrases as well. So you'll find some that make sense to you or make up your own. So before I go on, I just want to check in about the practice, the formal sitting practice with appreciative joy. Any questions about 
how to do this, how to use your formal sitting time. Yeah, Andrew. I'm I'm having trouble seeing the distinction between uh, appreciative joy and metta. Can you speak a little bit to the distinction? Yeah, I mean, they're really all the same. <laughs> you know, at least this is my conviction. And uh, because ultimately it is this heart that is released. It's temporarily dropped boundaries. It's inclusive, all-embracing. And in order to be inclusive and all-embracing, it has to be able to include what is beautiful and good, just like it has to be able to include what is tragic and painful, that's compassion. It has to be able to include what's confusing and ambiguous, which is equanimity is okay, even when we don't know what it is, right? That's kind of the nature of equanimity, to be okay with whatever's coming and going. And metta, loving kindness, is really that basic goodness. And then when that basic goodness is in in this moment noticing suffering, then it morphs into compassion. Or if it's meeting something beautiful in this moment, it morphs into appreciative joy. So in a way, it's like metta is the the word that just talks about the basic goodness of the heart. Equanimity is kind of how all of those beautiful qualities of the heart need this wisdom of equanimity that uh, everything belongs, everything's workable. That's the equanimity piece. And then appreciative joy and um, compassion or just allows that heart to stay open even in moments of extreme beauty or extreme suffering. Yeah. And for those who weren't here, uh, last April there was, I forget, maybe a five-week class on loving kindness and compassion. So you can listen to that on the website, um, and the readings are on the Buddhist Studies webpage. The uh, mudita and the equanimity will be front and center but there's a column on the right of all the past Buddhist studies class. So if you want the readings for the one last spring, just look for loving kindness and compassion and you'll get them. And the talks and the guided meditations are all on Dharma Seed. Um, just look in April of last year. Other questions about doing the practice? Yeah, Jane, all the way back here. Um, I realize that the practice of appreciative joy is mostly towards another or others, but I'm wondering about when you really have a difficult time being happy for yourself and uh, that there might also be times where there'd be practice. Uh, Say if you came from a a very um, condemning sort of history or from a religious practice that... Uh, didn't allow you to have joy for your own goodness? or So I just wondered if you'd speak to that a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Remember the initial image you bring up is just that. Because it isn't about having mudita for the cat eating its food. It's using that image to directly sense 
a capacity to connect with what is good. And then, that, so it's just the gateway to that appreciation going everywhere, including everything. It's interesting, you know, I did this retreat a number of years ago, a couple of decades ago, I think now, with uh, Paak Saida, this Burmese teacher. And I was doing the four elements practice, something we've covered here in the Buddhist studies class uh, a long time ago. And <clears throat> it's just interesting about the elements, like just as an example, temperature, which is one of the elements. So in any moment, you know, there's a temperature. But the interesting thing is, the mind can be trained, like now I'm feeling kind of warm, but my mind can be trained to notice coolness even when the general tone is hot. Because it's relative, right? Cool is relative. It's always there. And it's the same with beauty and goodness. It's like uh, when and I changed out our heating system at our house, and we have heat pumps now because they're really energy efficient ways to heat and cool a house. And, uh, but it's interesting how even when it's minus five, the mini split, the heat pump, is able to take the heat out of the outside te- temperature, air, and bring it into the house, right? Even when it's five below, it can draw heat from that and warm the house. And when it's 100 degrees outside, it can draw cool from the 100 degree air and bring it into the house. It just says something about our reality. So this is the thing, like we, there may be places that are difficult to go, maybe ourselves, like appreciating what is beautiful and good in the body, in the mind, in the conditioning of the mind. But eventually that radiation, the radiance, the trust in goodness will be all-inclusive. It will really seem as if everything can be seen in that light as being good and beautiful, as belonging, of having value. Even people or qualities that would otherwise, you know, we'd be frightened of. And that will be a challenge, you know, and I I mentioned this a long time ago in one of the Buddhist studies class, but when George W. Bush was president, you know, my politics don't really align with how he sees things. But, uh, you know, just I didn't want to spend eight years with an aversive mind. And I found it very easy to imagine him getting, you know, having some sense of his personality, kind of hanging out with his teenage daughters or young adult daughters, and kind of that banter that I imagine might exist between them. Um, And being able to appreciate that family love that I imagine at least is there in moments, right? It didn't mean that I didn't have other thoughts about that person or disagree with, uh, you know, the political choices. But I could find something to appreciate there. I also, it's like when he won, 
I thought that maybe something between him and his dad, you know, which I'm sure is a complicated relationship, you know, the, the two Georges, that, that there might have been some kind of healing or, I don't know, I just imagine, and I could appreciate that, like, whatever that resolution might have been in that moment when he first won. Even though, otherwise, it was like I was a little bit, you know, upset. <laughs> you know, because I didn't want that, you know, the election to go the way that it did. So this is the thing about our practice. It's really important. The first step is, even if it's borrowed faith, is the presumption that there's two things. There's goodness and there's a heart or mind that can recognize, recognize goodness and can abide there and that that's a good thing. I guess that's three things, right? There's goodness, there's a heart that can recognize it and abide in that and that is a good thing to do. And that's all we need to get started. And then if we do that formally during our formal sitting time and then we'll just start naturally finding ourselves doing it during the day as things happen. Yeah. Bob? Thank you. How does one, in sort of the the advice you just gave, um, avoid creating a a happy story that isn't true that ultimately turns into, you know, sadness when when the bubble is burst? Yeah, that's the exuberance. That's the near enemy. Mary's laughing because I'm good at that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this is sort of people who are more cynical, nihilistic, and critical. We use this as an excuse not to let beauty and goodness in. You know, it's just going to, you know, the bubble's going to burst and we'll be left high and dry or betrayed once again. You know, it's only ice cream. It's only a nice spring day. Winter's coming. <laughs> you know, we, we can really be dismissive. <clears throat> so it's really about the present moment. Like, it's not about whether it lasts or it doesn't last. It's just connecting with the way it is. There's something about letting it in that is itself beautiful. And so we're, we want to be able to let in everything. And so the particular training, especially these first two weeks, is can we recognize and practice letting in simple acts of beauty, simple acts of goodness, seeing other people happy, noticing our own happiness, our own ease and feelings of well-being that arise here and there. Can we let it in without being confused by it? So it isn't about building something on it. So that's why you have to find a phrase, like the phrase that I use, kind of good for more of a nihilistic, cynical type. But for your type, right, if you're kind of the rose-colored lens type of person, yeah, well, anyway, you know, so you have to find what your, the support your mind needs because it's about being intimate with the beauty as it is, not being confused by it or imagining that it's more than what it is. It's just what it is. It's beautiful. But it's not an end-all. It's 
not going to save anybody. The fact that my cat is eating its dinner, you know, doesn't change the world in any big way. But it's just interesting when the heart really lets it in, how healing that is. Same thing, of course, if we're letting in some suffering. That is also deeply healing and liberating. Because the awakening, the the liberating process is going from being a regular human being, a deluded human being that has chronic habits of separating itself out through its cognitive processes. And the healing process, the awakening process, is to stop doing that. And the way we stop doing that is we're learning that everything can be trusted unconditionally. That the heart can really say yes to the terror and horror, to the beauty and the goodness, to what's ambiguous and confusing. That the heart doesn't have to follow that deep habit of separating itself out because it doesn't trust the beauty doesn't trust the horror, and it doesn't trust what's confusing and ambiguous. So it has kind of gotten itself in a prison, which is, I'm going to be in my own world, my own constructed world, because I don't trust being open and intimate and vulnerable and real. I don't trust letting life make an impression. So I defend myself by interpreting everything as it's coming in, right? Oh, that's just Bob, you know, or that's just that. And then I, um, and then we start feeling, you know, we kind of, it, it sort of works against us, but we keep doing the same thing to fix the problem because we start feeling like dead or like insecure. But it's precisely because we've disconnected so we feel like we got to get even further away or safer because I, I feel insecure. So we really, it's a self, you know, samsara. There's, that's that feedback mechanism that repeats itself. So now we're creating another one. We're learning to notice. We're using a, <clears throat> the continuity of present moment awareness to notice that when we open to suffering, what we did in the spring with the compassion class, when we open with a, just a generic friendliness, or specific appreciative joy to what's good and beautiful, or equanimity with what's ambiguous. But in any case, we're learning to trust the exposure and the connection and the not knowing, right? Because we're going from trusting the knowing to being really enlivened by the not knowing. And that's the thing about the love See, don't expect it to make sense. That's the, the reason that it can really get big, fill the space of the body, mind, the world, is precisely because the world, I'm sorry, the mind isn't demanding that it makes sense. Same thing with compassion. When we start like caring about everybody, even the people we don't like, and when compassion is really strong, it doesn't make sense. And it doesn't mean anything in the sense that I'm going to go do this. You know, I'm going to sell everything and go do this thing. You may do something, but the 
the compassion is just a realization that I can let in, I can let the heart be touched. And I'm not afraid of what that leads to. Like, it's going to inform my life. I might give away everything. But I'm not at that point of deciding. It's not about deciding whether I'm going to give away everything or not give everything. I'm just letting it in. And if we're letting in what's horrible, then it's compassion. If we're letting in what's beautiful, it's appreciative joy. So we're trusting that exposure more than having a plan about how to be a human being or how to live our particular life. Other questions about how we'll be doing this practice? No, please. Yeah, my name's Rick. Um, I was just wondering, do you recommend um, maybe changing the meditation object in the same sit so possibly as we practice um, appreciative joy and the mind becomes collected and transitioning to the breath and doing more concentration practice, or would you recommend kind of separating those two? Um, Maybe for the duration, because the course is relatively short, and it's really good to get uh, enough of, uh, like learn to like it and learn to have some skill with it. It's nice to give it some time. And the concentration and stability we get with the Brahma Viharas, these four beautiful emotions, they really support our practice because those of you who have done them before know a lot of safety comes up. So it really is a wonderful antidote for sort of general tendency towards anxiety and towards depression and towards <clears throat> you know other afflicted emotional states that we often inhabit. So if we get some momentum with any of these four Brahma-viharas, it just stabilizes our life in an important way. I often say to people you know, who come in for a, a practice meeting that you know, people who really seem to be committed to the practice, that at some point, you know, we take a vast view when we're into the practice and even to the degree of imagining many lifetimes. Like I'm in it for you know, as many lifetimes as it takes. Now, I don't have any idea if that turns out that way, but just to have a sense that I'm willing to take the time to build the skill set that will really be useful in the awakening process. And it's not like I'm going to say, well, you know, I'm 60. I'm almost 60. I don't think I have time to build that skill set, you know. But I, I, so I, I think it's useful to have this, like, I, I don't care how long it takes. I'm going to really get the foundation down right. And one of the ways we get the foundation down right is we start cultivating a relationship with these four qualities, the Brahma-viharas. We don't like put it off. This is a central part of the awakening process. For some people, it will be very organic and natural. It will be kind of what brings you into the practice and kind of what comes easy for you. But for others, it's not. And we really have to be creative and persistent until we start to fall in love with this part of the practice and really see its value. 
because it really has an important value. So like for at least this you know time, I think it's really good. And just on your own, you know, there's of course at dharmacy.org this wonderful website that has basically it's all the teachers who teach at Spirit Rock and IMS in Massachusetts and Gaia House in England and I'm forgetting the retreat center in Switzerland, but these insight meditation places, if you teach at one of those places, then all your talks go up there. So there are a lot of great talks on mudita up there or appreciative joy. Just search for those key words and then just start experimenting because you'll find somebody who guides the meditation or talks about it in ways that really will create a doorway into it. So especially for those of you who don't quite get mudita. I find it, for me, when I started to do mudita, it was very healing, like a lot of emotional baggage that didn't get addressed in other spiritual practices started to get addressed when I did mudita to really learn, because I have kind of a stingy nature uh, in my heart, just through my conditioning and the family I was raised in. It really helped to see that my heart could be generous in this way and that it was not just that I could do it, but it felt so good to do it. It was so pleasant to notice that my heart could be in this generous mode and just appreciating things and abide in that space. Anything else that questions about the sitting practice? I sent along uh, something from Ajahn Sumedho on joy. He wrote, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful person, you should contemplate them as a rotting corpse. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanent, on its impermanence and how it changes to not being so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on change on the unsatisfactoriness and the impersonal nature. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is the joy of mudita, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bittered and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. Once you have insight, then one finds that one enjoys, delights in the beauty and the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. That is mudita. And part of the, this goes back to what you were saying, Bob, about the tendency towards exuberance or sort of building castles about some something that's great. 
So we need, this is where equanimity comes in. Like I mentioned, it's sort of the foundation of all of these beautiful emotions. These emotions, these four emotions aren't really separate. They're really the heart that can say yes. And how that sort of, the, the different ways that that heart expresses itself that, that can include, that can say yes. And it, of course, it takes some wisdom. Loving, compassion, appreciation, joy, equanimity takes some wisdom. And the budding wisdom that we need to develop this practice is that what we're opening, what we're including is not self. It's not going to be ground for the ego. The ego can't grasp it, can't own it. See, there's sort of two basic approaches. You could, I think it's sometimes useful to think of it as, you know, we have two basic personalities or two basic pathways to awakening. One is this way of including, everything being included, everything being allowed, letting everything in, which is, you could call that the path of love. And then the path of wisdom is the mind, instead of including everything, whatever the mind knows, whatever the mind sees, the mind sees, oh, it's just that being known. So it's a kind of deconstructing, realizing that's not much of anything. It's just that sight being known, that sound being known, that thought being known, that feeling of pleasure being known, that feeling of pain being known. Even mudita, mudita is just mudita being known, just that emotion of mudita being known, right? So that's the wisdom but they lead to the same place. If you're doing more of the wisdom mode, if that's more your mental personality or spiritual personality, the mind, the mind, with the mind, how the mind understands, it doesn't make sense to grasp. Doesn't make sense to get attached or identified to anything. So where does that mind end up? It ends up being intimate with everything. Right. Precisely because it's not grasping anything, it ends up being intimate with everything. The other path is whatever one sees, whatever one thinks, whatever one touches, one says, yeah, yes, yes. Now this, you too, this too. Everything belongs. No doors, no windows. And, and the same thing, the, the problem that needs to be abandoned is the habit of the mind constructing the idea of separation and then being fooled by the idea it's constructed. And so the practice of, uh, it's really good, even if we're a wisdom type, it's really good to do the mudita practice or any of the Brahma-Vihara practices because what it does is it teases out the self, like the shadow in wisdom practice is a, a self that's nihilistic, a somebody who thinks this world isn't worth grasping, this world isn't worth investing in. 
I'm not going to get identified with that. It's going to go away anyway. You know, it's going to keep changing. If I can't own it, you know, I, I notice this sometimes people would say, you know, I don't know, do you want to drive my motorcycle? And so like, I'd say, no, he's like, I'm never going to own a motorcycle, you know, and all it's going to be is, you know, this novel experience and then it'll be over. Or even traveling, you know, I'm sort of, I told you I'm a kind of a cynical type. It's like, yeah, I go, but then you got to come home. So either it's not going to meet my expectations, in which case, why go? Or it far exceeds my expectations, but then I got to go home. You know, it's like, so what's it about? So the, the thing about doing mudita practice is it's like it will tease out that part, that wrong view in the mind that is, it basically believes that things are bad for me to realize there's, there's beauty in the world. And it challenges that notion. So it's not so easy. Because it's, it's like easy to say, oh, everything's bad. But that's not awakening, that's aversion, right? And the Buddha called, you know, this is one of the three kinds of craving, which I like to call, get me the heck out of here. Which, you know, then the extreme form is suicide, but it's any way we close down, any way we turn away, any way we somehow dismiss the world. And in this, a lot of spiritual... Um, you know, I think not so helpful spiritual ideas are about transcending the muck, the messiness, the stupidity of the world. And you have things like Ayn Rand, uh, was it Atlas Shrugged, that book where all the elites, you know, all the stupid people and the elites want to get away, you know, it's like we'll go and have a perfect world somewhere where we don't have to take care of all the dumb people in the world and impoverished people in the world and so this is a pervasive sense that can masquerade as wisdom, but it's just aversion. It's just hatred and fear, you know, being afraid of being contaminated. So mudita and the other qualities of the Brahma Viharas, it really helps us trust because the awakening uh, process depends on being connected with the actual world we're living in. It's not about like getting the heck out of here or transcending the world. We need the world because we're realizing the heart that's not afraid to be intimate with the ambiguity, with the beauty, with the difficulty. And so the shadow to the more loving types, right? right? The shadow is to be confused by the beauty and the goodness. And even the compassion, to think it's more than what it is. Or that it's something that somebody owns. I'm loving, I'm appreciative. So that's, that's why we, we have to really merge or surrender, rest, in the feeling, we have to lose the sense of, like uh, um, Venerable Analio, this uh, German monk that I'm going to be studying with for the month, on retreat with for the month of February, 
we have to go from practicing metta, practicing appreciative joy, to being appreciative joy. So that's really the task at hand in our guided or in our formal sitting times when we have a little bit more um, <clears throat> time and supportive conditions is to really you you know to be devoted to the mental image and the phrases, but then when if and when that emotion of love, the particular flavor of appreciative joy is strong, to really let the mind collect, gather with that feeling. So it's a real submission, a real giving our, the heart to it or resting in it, letting it really fill the space of the mind and body. So it's like disappearing into that and the thing is, it's trustworthy. This is why it's such a good meditation object, because that it feels so wholesome and healing and trustworthy that it's relatively easy for the ego to think, oh, "I'm going to go for it. You know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to rest here. I'm going to abide in the space of love." And at this point, when it really becomes pervasive, I don't know if people really know the difference between metta and loving kind, uh, metta and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity, because it's really a sort of a total radiance, inclusive radiance of the heart. It's a, it's really the unification of the mind that is being experienced when the practice is really strong for a moment or for a longer period of time, just depending. But all we need to be concerned about is understanding movements in that direction and movements back to more ordinary afflicted states so that we really begin to understand the supporting causes. We're really studying like what helps the mind rest and abide in the state and kind of understanding the terrain of our own heart and mind to support this sort of blossoming of these beautiful emotions. Good, so it's 9 o'clock. We'll leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time for a couple breaths. Appreciating the goodness here in the room, in our hearts. And may this goodness continue and increase and never end. And thanks for coming, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.